Hello, John Schuler. Good morning, Brandon. How's it going, buddy? Is it morning? It's 12.50 where I am. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I just got up. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I'm on vacation. Yeah? Mental mental vacation. Yeah. Oh, get it together. We got a class to teach. We do, huh? Yeah, I'll be down there tomorrow morning. My flight leaves. Early. I got to be at the... I got to get up at 2.30. I got to be at the airport at... 3.30? My flight board's at 4.30. Dang, buddy. So, it's gonna be a it's gonna be an early, early morning for me. Big time. Well, that's not too bad. When I was flying out to your place in Arkansas, I had to pull out of here at midnight to make it down to Sacramento. Same thing. Catch, catch the first flight in the morning. Well, and I made the cardinal sin of putting a brisket on today. What is it with a brisket? Like, it never cooks fast enough. Last time I put it on, I put it on like at 2.30 in the afternoon. It was midnight before it was ready, right? Hmm. I, I had no idea. It's first time doing brisket, so okay, whatever. Live and learn. So this morning, I got up at 5 a.m. Set my alarm. Got up at 5 a.m. Put it on at 5 a.m. Thinking, eh, be ready, like, you know, a little bit of a late lunch. I just texted my wife and said, hey, what's what's it at right now? It's still got like 30 degrees to go, and the last 30 degrees take forever. Well, she'll enjoy it. The kids <laughs> will enjoy it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And she can maybe send maybe you I'll just go to McDonald's or something. Go Tell to the you how delicious it is. I know. Yeah. yeah, it is what it is. So, anyways, but looking forward to class. A lot of good people are coming. A lot of alumni are coming. Some new people that uh, I've known from over the years. Eric Nagel is one of them. Um, uh, yeah, like who else is coming? Wade Bloom is coming. This is like his fourth or fifth class. I love Wade Bloom, like Wade. dude. Wade. Some people are just such good people. And Wade is one of those people. Last Christmas, I got this package in the mail, and it was from Wade. And it was all this amazing stuff from Austin, Texas, like a blanket and mezcal and candles and gifts for the kids. Super thoughtful, like insanely thoughtful. Brian Manzanares. You know Brian down in Louisiana? Yeah, I haven't seen Brian forever. I know. He's the same way. Uh, He's very thoughtful. He'll, He'll just send me a package out of the blue and... Just a super, super thoughtful person, but Wade is one of those people. So, you know what I like about Wade? Wade has an, you know, outside looking in, man. He's got a great history of concrete in his family, right? That night we all went out and yeah, he was talking about his dad and, you know, this massive company and always, you know, concrete, 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 and, you know, out on his own countertops, you know, it's gone a whole different direction in the family business or not in the, his own business, excuse me, from where he came in his family business. Meaning again, just, I love those kind of stories where we're talking, whether we're talking woodworkers or whatever, when someone comes along to hear the history of the materials that they've been working with so long and why they are where they're at now, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I remember he told us a story. His dad does a lot of military airport runways. And they did a huge airport on an Air Force base. And they, you know, they poured all the concrete. And anyways, when it was all said and done, the the powers that be came out and looked at it and said it was a shade too dark or maybe too yeah. light. I can't remember. But it, it didn't match the runway it was next to. So they ripped it all out and did it again. And I'm thinking... Yeah. Do the, the pilots care? Do the do, who cares? This is taxpayers' money, but you know it that's is what, what it happens. Is. That's that's all that matters. Yeah. When 
The finances are not coming out of your pocket. They don't care. Well, and you need to do something. I mean, what else are you going to do? You know, go out there. Hmm. It looks a little darker than that one over there. I know it's brand new, but I want it to be the same. Let's rip yeah. it all out. Let's rip it out. Yeah, yeah. $50 million, $100 million, whatever it was, Let's $200 million. Eh, Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. Just rip it out. It's just concrete. Anyways. Well, if so, I was the dad, I wouldn't care either. I guess I would look at it like I'm getting my, my tax dollars back to me. Well, he is. That's what but, I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. 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 But Wade Bloom's going to be there. Justin McRae is coming. So we've had Justin on the podcast. Justin McRae is going to be in his yeah. class. Uh, Brett Pope, Justin Stevenson, Kyle Davis, just a lot of really good people in this class. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. Uh, Seth Taylor. Guys doing some really cool stuff. That's, that's what's always fun to me. I yeah. mean, I love it when like Justin just, I'm going to call it the shouse. Him and I had a lot of conversations about the shop slash house you know, that he built for him and his family. people are calling them Barndos cool. now. I think Shouse kind of went by the wayside. Bar- now it's a Barndominium. Oh, Barndominiums? Yeah, is that what they're calling them now? I think, that's, I think that's a more common term. Shouse okay. is just a little, that was like seven years ago. Barndominium is, okay. you know, 2023. I'm not up to times, buddy. I know. I'm not up to, it's yeah, okay. I'm up slow. So did he build it one of those? It seems like a shop and a house together. Yeah. Rather than a barn and a condo. I don't know. Well, I think uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines use the term barn dominium and that's what made it stick. Whatever those, they're like the, they're like the modern Oprah. Oh, okay. So whatever they do, it just turns to gold. So if they say barn dominium, then the lexicon of the human language changes to barn dominium. I believe that's what mm-hmm. happened. I think that's what my wife told me is that's what happened. But did he build one? Yes. Yeah. Cool. I've been thinking Justin, about building. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I keep thinking, so we're looking at a piece of property to buy right now. I go back and forth between doing ram to earth, doing like a modern kind of Scandinavian modern house, like a 1212 gable roof, you know, long kind of agricultural looking building, but a modern house. Mm-hmm. I go back and forth between doing that or doing a black metal modern barndo. Both have their benefits. You know, the, the barndos, they just go up so fast. They're post frame. They go up so fast and um, they have big unsupported spans so you can have huge rooms huge living rooms so there's a lot of benefits to it but you know rammed earth is forever man it's like a diamond a diamond is forever rammed earth is forever you build a rammed earth and it's going to be there five thousand ten thousand twenty thousand years from now which for me there's benefit to that i love that and i don't know dude i talked about in the last podcast maybe it's two podcasts back where yeah, it was two where i was talking um to martin about solar flares and uh ballistically defensible structure and rammed earth is that, you know, it's bulletproof. Whereas a metal building, eh, not so much. So there's that consideration. No, you punch holes with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, armor piercing. Well, not even armor piercing. I mean, it's like 20 gauge steel. I could pop holster with a 22. Yeah, maybe, but at the end of the day, man, I mean, I mean, Brandon, can you just be nicer to people? So no one's shooting <laughs> up your house. <laughs> I mean, come on, buddy. Well, there's only okay. a couple concrete guys in Wichita, and I don't, I don't think they dislike me, so I'm not worried about them. I'm, I'm worried about the hordes of people that uh, that right. didn't have okay. any preparations whatsoever, and they look around and be like, oh, hmm, look at that guy over there with solar and a well. The and zombie apocalypse coming through. Yeah. Right yeah. on. So, you know, like I said, you need you need some space, and you need ballistically defensible walls at minimum. So concrete, yeah. John. You want to get to concrete? Yeah. Because, listen, I got a, 
we can't drag this thing out today. This podcast, we got to be boom, 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 boom. You know what I'm saying? All right. bow, bow, bow. Yeah, you got to get back to your, uh, what you got on the grill. I got to hurry up and wait. I got to hurry up and wait. I got to get there and I got to stare at it because that's going to make it go faster. No, I got a lot to do. I got to pack. I got to, you know, and I got to go to bed pretty early. I'm getting up at 2.30. So, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be uh, doing too late. So anyways, let's, let's bang through this pretty quick. Sure. First of all, I got a few things to talk about. One is a few questions I've received recently, and I've seen some questions on different Facebook groups. It's just materials for casting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same question has popped up a million times. Hey, guys, I'm casting a piece longer than eight feet. How do I seam two pieces of melamine together? The short answer is you don't. You don't. You can, but you'll see it. Now, if you're doing a dusty crete aesthetic or if you're going to do a terrazzo finish, you're going to do a really deep grind. Okay, yeah, yeah, knock yourself out, you know chamfer it, bondo it, sand it smooth, seal yeah, it. Yeah, sand it, epoxy it. Yeah. All that. You know, and but if you're doing an as cast finish, you're going to see it no matter what and it's just not worth it. So, number 1, that question. So melamine is my go-to. I know some people hate melamine. I understand that. It is what it is. For me, for the molds that I build, for the pieces that I make, I'm making a custom chair, a custom table, a custom fireplace, whatever it is, the formability the the ability for me to take a material, cut it down, pocket screw it together quickly, silicone the seams, is unmatchable with other materials. So that's why I use melamine. And most of the pieces I make are one-off. They're not repeated pieces. So it doesn't make sense to invest in HDPE or polycarbonate or steel or something like that because that's not the kind of pieces I make. So for me, that mm -hmm. makes sense. But melamine. Now, the downside of melamine is... There's some arguments that it's not uh, environmentally, you know, sustainable. Well, I'd say that's that's an argument you can go back and forth on because they make it with sawdust, which is coming as a byproduct from lumber manufacturing. They don't use formaldehyde anymore. They used to use formaldehyde in the manufacturing. At least the MDF and melamine that I get here in the United States is formaldehyde free. So that's not in it any longer. And I just think, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefits to it. But the downside is if you scratch it, it's going to swell. So you have to be yep. somewhat careful. Now you don't have to super baby it, but at the same time, you don't want to like take a screw and just right across it because it's going to leave a scratch and when water hits, it, it's going to swell up and leave, leave a mark. But, uh, you know, I've been using melamine now for 20 years and I've only had less than a handful of pieces have a problem due to the melamine swelling. So it's super rare. And those are always my mistake because I dropped a hammer and I shouldn't have, you know, been doing something like that or whatever. The next material would be steel. Steel. Oh, I got steel. That sounds good. That sounds great. We've talked about steel before. It's been a while, but we've talked about it. The benefit of steel yeah. is you can get a huge piece. You can get a, you know, I, I've heard some guys getting 10, 12, 15 foot wide pieces. I think you can even get bigger if you can get a truck to bring it to you by super long, by 20 feet or longer. The problem with steel, there's a few problems with steel. One problem is, is propensity. I can't even talk. It's propensity to rust. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, the second thing is it will have a texture to it. So if you're doing a as-cast finish and you're not going to process it, that could be problematic. It, it will be problematic. But, you know, people like Dusty Baker who are doing a very textured surface, he casts on steel because it doesn't affect his finish. But one of the biggest problems with steel, well, let's hit two problems. Biggest one, difficulties with steel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, is you can't screw into it. So if I'm doing a complex form, you're limited to double-sided tape or hot glue Right. To attach your side rails, which become problematic, especially with hydraulic pressure on bigger pieces, there's, there's difficulties with fabricating a complex design. That's one problem. But the biggest problem with steel is that it's a heat sink. 
it's going to suck the heat out of the concrete. When the concrete's trying to exotherm, it's generating heat. Well, the steel or vice itself. versa. It really depends on a lot of guys. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. A lot, depending on your shop environment, which I've seen some shops, and I talked to a lot of shops, they're like, ah, John, we always keep it 75 in here. Well, okay, well, it's still 75. <clears throat> but, you know, guys that are at 60 degrees, and I'm swinging that, maybe they're in a shop like, um, I'm not for, I do believe Sergo, right? Sergo down in Florida it's Surho, uses some steel the, tables. The G is a soft G. It's a Serho, not Sergo. Whatever. Sergo. 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 Sergo Rojas. Yeah, it's not yeah. Ro, Rojas. You're going to say Sergo Rojas? He's just not, I pronounce it right. Dude, I am an American. <laughs> La Jola. La Jola. <laughs> Bogovilia. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, see, I mean, I can see the opposite times. He'll be down there and him and I will be, in fact, we just talked the other day and it was, you know, 115 degrees, 98% humidity. I mean, I can't imagine casting on your table that's 115 degrees with no real way of cooling it down. Yeah. So those are the challenges. One of them with steel is controlling that temperature. And then per what you just said, even if you kept it 75 degrees, it's going to suck the heat out of the concrete during the cure. So that's, these are things that definitely need to be compensated. Yeah. For. So if you're in a hot shop, you got to be able to cool it down for the casting phase because you don't want it yeah. to kick it off, but then you want to bring it up to temp so it doesn't pull the heat out. I think steel, I think it has benefits, mainly the size you can get that's uninterrupted, but the downsides are tremendous and logistically right. it's something you're going to have to sort out because, you know, Dusty is, is putting heating elements underneath his tables now, but... You know, we did the class at Dusty's place mm -hmm. and with Maker Mix, and uh, we cast, and the next day we came in and checked, and they still had not started the exotherm yet. The next morning, right. the steel had totally sucked the heat out. As it's trying to do its thing, it's just pulling the heat out, and nobody knew it. Now hey, we're talking about a mix that cubes. has timetables similar to your CSA cements yeah. because of the illuminance. So to see that stuff not kick off, that was pretty crazy. Yeah. So that is something that if you're going to use steel, just be aware you're going to have to account for cooling it if it's in a hot shop, but you'll definitely have to account for somehow bringing the steel up in heat to match the exotherm of right. the concrete. So you don't want to overheat it. You don't want to like kick it up to like 200 degrees. Uh, but even if you were at 90 degrees, it's still going to be a heat sink. If the steel is 90 degrees and the concrete's trying to get to 120, the steel's just going to keep pulling the heat out. Right. Well, unless like what he's done, you put a technically I'm going to call it a heat element. He's got a heat element under that table, 85, 90 degrees. Uh, then there becomes a point if the, if the steel hits 90, yes, it's still going to absorb some, but much like our blankets, because the blankets that we recommend, which is like the sunbeam blankets, which are used for your bed, you know, they only get to about 90 degrees. Yeah. I mean, they're not 125. So, you know, by, by, by that point, it becomes an insulation value in my opinion, and in, in, I shouldn't say opinion, in my experience, it becomes an insulating value so that the concrete holds the temperature. And you really like that temperature, about 110 to 120 degrees. Next thing on my list here. Well, hang on. Before we go Ooh, there, I got oh, a benefit to oh. steel. All right. Give me your benefit. Yeah. The, the benefit would be aesthetics. So I just, speaking of Justin McRae, I just saw some photos of some sinks he was making, knowing full well he was casting them on steel. 
And I, I have to admit, seeing these makes me want to, I'm going to go put a, I'm going to build a small steel table. Years ago, I used to have steel tables and I hated them. And I can't tell you why I hated them because, I mean, this goes all the way back to when I was starting this, whatever, 23, 24 years ago as one of the early adopters in this, oh, steel, it's got to be, yeah, and you know what, I didn't know, cold, cold rolled, hot rolled, I don't know. I just went with whatever. So I didn't care for them. I got rid of them pretty quickly. Now, seeing Justin's going to, I'm going to build a small steel table specifically for certain projects. We may get Justin on here to talk about, I don't think he was trying to create this finish, but it is a gorgeous industrial, I'm going to call it an industrial finish, where you can see he left some of the old nuances of the steel reside in the surface of the concrete. And to me, man, it looked bitching. <laughs> it looked really, really cool. So with that, uh, I'm going to do it. So there is instances where the texture in steel is beneficial, but that's that's for some clients. Some clients may not like that. Some clients might want smooth. And if you're going to do totally smooth, steel might be the right thing. Yeah, no. Because no matter what, it's going to get scratched up. It's going to get beat. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, the next material I have here is plastic. So there's all different types of plastic you can cast on. You can cast on um, HDPE, high-density polyethylene. You can cast on polycarbonate. You can cast on acrylic. You can cast on different plastics. Different plastics have different characteristics. Some are easier to machine. Some will explode if you hit it with a saw. You know, I've done that before. So there's different types of plastic. But the problem with plastics, kind of across the board, is they tend to grow and shrink when they're exposed to heat or cold. That can become problematic. They can start to develop ripples and waves especially in a big piece, when you secure the side rails down, you screw through the plastic into your table below or however you're doing it, and they, they want to grow because it's heating up and it has no way to, to expand, then it can create a ripple. For instance, this wasn't with concrete, but it was with rammed earth. This last project I did in St. Louis uh, about a month ago, we were, do, we were using wood forms, but we lined them with HDPE plastic sheeting to create a smooth surface. And we tested on a small scale, it worked great, no problems whatsoever. And so the forms went up, uh, the crews lined them with plastic, and the side of the forms, when the sun was coming in, hitting the side uh, where the HP was in direct sunlight, they all grew and created waves. Oh, and man. those waves were permanent. We thought, well, you know, the pressure of the ramming will flatten it back out. No, it grew, it's not gonna shrink. Um, so when we were ramming, you know, we could see these waves. We kept thinking, eh, when we pull the forms, they'll probably be gone. No, nope, they were there. They were there. So mm. lesson learned. You know, plastic has benefits, but also has downsides. And that's one of the main downsides. The other downside is it's kind of a one-use material. Um, it's more susceptible to damage than steel is. For the most part, you're going to be screwing through it. Now, you could probably double-stick tape it if you wanted to, but it's going to be a real pain in the butt to get that uh, tape off the plastic. So it's more or less a, a one use. But if you're going to do a big piece, back to the original question that I see all the time of how do I join two pieces of melamine? What I would do is I just make a big table out of MDF, melamine, whatever, and then lay a piece of plastic over the top of it that's full length, one piece. And that's how I've done it in the past. And it works really good. But you have to be aware of the characteristic that it wants to expand. So, so there's that. 
Uh, and then the last material, John, on my list here is rubber. Rubber. Now, I guess there's another material, fiberglass, but we'll leave that for a different. Well, time. see, I was going to say for. So you think in plastic? Is that what you're considered for mica along the plastic line? Because uh, I consider that laminate, not plastic. It's it's a little bit more stable, but yeah. Well, see, that's what I'm saying because in this situation, we're still talking about seaming two pieces together. How to create a, again, say someone's doing a 16 foot. You know, for mica comes in rolls. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that is something. It's still going to be a one-time use, but for a 16-foot table, what isn't going to be a one-time use, in my opinion? Uh, but yeah, it would be glue that stuff down, much like a countertop. It's going to use it, roll it out, seamless, and that's a material you can get in textureless or in whatever texture. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. You know, I, I moved away from using laminate. When I was in Tempe, there was a Wilson Art, which is a big national distributor of laminate. And I used to go down and pick up laminate. And, dude, I mean, I'm pretty meticulous about things. Gluing down laminate is an art form, and I'm not a master of that art. So, you know, I use the stick thing. You put down the the contact cement that they sell at Wilson Art. You roll it on. You let it dry on your table. You roll it on the back of the laminate. You let it dry. You put the sticks down. You put the the, uh, the laminate on top, and you pull out one stick at a time, and you roll it out, and you pull out a stick, and you roll it out, and you pull out a stick, and you work your way down. Inevitably for me, a little piece of a wood chip or something would end up underneath and create a little bubble. Like, a, and I could see it. And when I cast a piece, because it's so smooth, when I flipped over, there's like this little divot in the middle of the table. And it drove me bananas. And it happened all the time when I use laminate. And that's why I moved away because Michael Carmody was like, well, you know, I go down and I get polycarbonate. It comes on a roll. And, you know, it comes in like a 5,000 foot roll. They'll cut off whatever you want. And it's thicker, so I'd get like quarter inch. And I would just essentially set it on top of my table. I wouldn't glue it down. And it was, for me, a lot safer and easier than the hassle that I always got when I was trying to glue down a laminate surface. Now, there's people out there a lot better at it than I am. And you can hire guys. You know, I would order from Wilson Art sometimes a piece already glued up. But it was mm-hmm. extreme, It was way more expensive than getting a piece of plastic. And so I was like, well, is it worth it? No, not for me, it's not. But maybe for somebody else it is. And maybe you're better at it than I am. I mean, chances are you are. There's that as well. But no, that's a good, that's a good uh, option, one I didn't consider. So, yeah. Um, but the last material, John, is rubber. Rubber, that's the last I have on my list here. And the benefits of rubber are you can create three-dimensional shapes, complex three-dimensional shapes. You can create a form and have it reusable more or less indefinitely, depending on what brand rubber you use and what type of rubber you use and how you store the rubber. Yeah, can you give me an stuff. example of what rubber? I'm, I'm trying to pick her sheets of rubber. What, no, what no, I'm talking, about, rubber? I'm talking about mold rubber. So I'm talking about molding uh, materials. So if you're making gotcha. a sink, if you're making um, drain plugs, a slot drain, a drain board, uh, an edge form, anything like that, rubber is a material that a lot of people are going to be casting against. You know, there's different manufacturers of rubbers, different types of rubber. So Kind of the, the big manufacturers would be Polytech, um, Smooth-On, uh, Industrial Polymers. There's a couple of companies out there that you see a lot of. My personal experience, it's just my experience, so take it for what it is. My personal experience is Polytech has been the most long-lasting, and it's a professional-grade rubber. And so I've had really good success. My first rubber mold I made was about 20 years ago. It was an AK-47 wall tile. I still have that mold, and that mold is still pliable and usable today. It's, it's just phenomenal how good that is. And that was made with Polytech 
urethane rubber. And that's just a really good rubber. It's 45 durometer, it's not too stiff, not too soft. It's just kind of a good general purpose rubber. I use it for the vast majority of the things I make that require rubber. Now, there's silicone rubbers, and rubber companies will tell you, oh, silicone, that's the gold standard, that's the best. Maybe, but they're way more finicky. They're more problematic. There's more things that go sideways. If there's any silicone in your master, the part you're making a mold off of or into, if there's any silicone whatsoever, the silicone that you pour into it will not cure in that spot. When you pull it, it's going to stay soft and gummy forever. And so then you got to chuck it. You got to start over again. That's happened to me so many times. I'm making something. I didn't realize that whatever this little thing was that it was in my master had some silicone in it. And it, it, it retarded the set of the silicone rubber that I poured into it, and it was gone. And it's super expensive. It's crazy expensive. I have some silicone molds here that are still super durable, super usable 20 years later, but no more so than the urethane ones, you know? So mm. I'm like, is there a benefit to silicone? And they'll say, well, you don't have to apply mold release. Well, no, you do. So I have a buddy that's a professional prototyper. That's all he does is makes complex molds. And he uses silicone. That's his preference. Great. That's what he likes. But he'll tell you, no, you can get a certain number of parts out of it, but you still have to replenish the silicone because every time you cast, there's some silicone being drawn out of the rubber. And so you do have to kind of, you know, condition the rubber. Okay, you're hitting me on something new then because, yeah, I was under the same impression. I thought silicone did not need any releases. So is there a specific product used to quote unquote condition the silicone? I believe a silicone spray. So there's silicone mm. mold release, I believe. Now, again, I'm not a, I'm not a silicone yeah. rubber expert because I had problems in the beginning 20-some years ago. And yeah, I just went to air. Screw those silicone releases. I know. But I have a really good friend who's a professional prototyper, and he, you should see the molds this guy makes. They are insane. Incredible molds. He uses silicone, but he, he's told me, like, that's a complete misconception that silicone does not require release because I was talking to him about it once. He's like, no, 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 no. Hmm. You get a certain number of parts out of it, but you need to replenish that silicone oil that's in the silicone rubber because they will pull silicone out. With each casting, it's drawn silicone out. And so you have to you have to keep it conditioned. Now, this is coming from a professional. The rubber manufacturers will say otherwise, but it's kind of like the polymer manufacturers in this industry saying, oh, you don't need to cure your concrete. You don't need to do any of those things. This will do it all. I think there's some really bad marketing it's done by manufacturers sometimes to sell their product because they believe like the convenience factor will be a good selling point, even if it's not yeah. fully true. Um, they'll they'll push a false narrative to sell their product, and I believe silicone is one of those things because all the benefits they push, I, I haven't found those to be true personally. So, anyways, that's silicone. Now, the manufacturers, like I said, I had really good success with Polytech. I've tried Smooth On. We used to uh, buy products from Smooth On when they bought Buddy Roads. I was buying Buddy Rhodes products from Smoothon, and um, I was also getting rubber from them. And we do classes, and they would they would send rubber for us to use in our class. Just my own honest assessment of Smoothon rubbers is they're hobby grade rubbers. They're not professional grade. They put a lot of plasticizer into rubber. They make them very liquidy, so they degas air easily. But by doing that, I feel that they've um, more or less diluted them down to the point to where when I when I make a mold with it with a poly or with a um, smooth on rubber, they don't have longevity. My experience has been I'll make a mold and then a month, two months, three months later, I'll go to grab it and it's kind of gummy and sticky. And again, mm. my, my friend that's a professional prototyper who this is his thing, 
He said, no, no, he's like, you know, Smoothon's great if you're going to make a mask for some cosplay event. But if you're doing this professionally, it's definitely not the rubber you want to use because it's definitely a, a DIY, DIY hobby grade product. Great. I mean, there's a market for that. I'm not that market. I'm a professional. I need molds that are going to last for years. And so that's why I prefer Polytech. I've tried industrial polymers. They were okay. Um, the 45 durometers I got from them felt more like a 50 or 60 durometer. They were way stiffer. Uh, I felt they were a little bit stickier and more difficult to work with than Polytech. I just wasn't as happy with the end result. But, you know, again, some people might like the way they pour and they might like the product. Great. Use it. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking because I picked up those ones from Joe. I just got done casting, <clears throat> working on that other integral kind of micro fiber, if that sounds right. Anyway, so these are so small, you know, I'm not putting any PVA fiber or glass fiber or anything in this kind of stuff. And I mean, they definitely popped out super easy, but by the time I'm done getting through testing and everything, if they need to be conditioned in some way, I'd like to be doing that. Yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing I didn't discuss with the rubber is why would you use rubber? Like, why would you ever bring it out? You're going to use it for a product that you're going to make a bunch of. Yeah. And it's going to save you time. You know, when I did tile for my, my renovation here in Wichita for my kitchen, I made these large format concrete tiles. I could have made a rubber mold, but by the time I made a rubber mold and I cast one or two at a time because you're only going to make a couple molds that big because you're going to use so much rubber. It was easier for me just to take melamine and make a jig that I could set on a table and then nail my melamine strips around it to create the shape. It was faster and ultimately cheaper to do it that way. But if I was doing sinks, let's say I'm doing a ramp sink for a university and I need to make 20 ramp sinks. Well, in that case, I'm going to make a master. I'm going to make a mold. And I'm just going to use that mold again and again and again and again because at that point, it's a time savings. So rubber is one of those things. I mean, it's liquid gold. Had I a time machine and could go back in time, I would go into the rubber industry because they just print money. It's like printer cartridge. You know, the, the, the ink in a printer cartridge is more valuable than gold based on weight. More valuable than gold, printer cartridge, ink. Rubber's like that too. It's pretty much more valuable than gold anymore. It's insane how expensive it is. So you have to be very, very picky about what you're going to use mold rubber for. It's going to be something you're going to be making a lot of and it's going to save you time. Yep. Yep. which I don't do a lot of. So I'll be the first to admit, I do not have a whole lot of experience using various mold rubbers. In fact, it sounds terrible. I've, I've almost done everything in all my years of doing this to avoid it just because it's outside my wheelhouse. Yeah. It's one of those things I, I used to do a lot more of it than I do now. I've moved away over the years in my business from larger production to more bespoke one-offs. And that's really what I do anymore is a customer comes to me and, uh, you know, projects Same. I'm working on right now are custom fireplace rounds, custom sinks, nothing is re repetitive. So, you know, when I was in Arizona, ASU would hire me to make a bunch of sinks. Well, okay. Then it made sense. Uh, but not anymore. Yeah. I'm saying yeah. everything's one-offs. Everything's one-offs. So what do you have, John? What's on your list? Um, well, you know, I know we just we we just said the last one, we kicked it into the ground. <clears throat> so I just thought once in a while I'll pull out things that people ask me, not just one person, but I've gotten several questions. 
Back to this whole idea of the pros and cons of polymers in your concrete. So the only one I want to address today was we know the pros, at least when they're used per what they're supposed to be effectively used for, which, again, I'll say all day long, I definitely believe there are situations for polymers and concrete. There's no question about it. I do believe, though, having worked with these for so long and knowing most of the polymer technologies available, the things that our industry has continued to fight trying to, so we thought, they were an absolute necessity in what we were doing when there's other ways to skin the cat. So the other thing I want to just talk about today is I've gotten quite a few questions about color and concrete and the use, the pros and cons of putting polymer in your concrete. And we mentioned in the last podcast, but we didn't go really in depth in it. So here's what I'm going to say. As we know, putting the polymer in the concrete makes it ultimately somewhat difficult for whatever sealing technology you're using. To compound that, putting the polymers in the concrete, I think we'll all agree, you always end up with a slightly kind of a washed out concrete, right? The pigments, the, it spreads it out. Even, even a good polymer, if, if that can be said, even a good polymer, it leaves you in a position to, uh, I'm going to say a necessity if you want to get color, even slight color enhancement, you have to use a sealer that color enhances. And that's a difficulty because they, you know, number one, they're probably a coating technology of some sort. They don't last. They don't have great scratch resistance. They don't have great wear. And you happen to applying it to something during its lifespan where, as we said, you put poison in the coffee, making it more difficult for the sealer to do its job anyway. John. So that, that's John. one more reason why John. I personally have avoided and will continue to avoid polymer taste technologies in the mixes that I'm designing John because Boy. I don't want to use an enhancing John. sealer. John. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going, I'm still going. I know. I know. Not just poison, but the antidote as well. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, you're a putting, you're putting a foamer, yeah, you're putting, it, yeah. you're putting a foamer in your concrete. Let's just call polymer what it is, a foamer. And then you're putting yeah. a defoamer <laughs> right. in as well. What? What madness? What crazy world are we living in? I was, my wife was uh, talking to me about this last night. And she was asking me because she saw some products marketed as revolutionary that was essentially a, mm. a polymer and a defoamer. And she's like, what's revolutionary about it? I said, nothing. It's marketing. These are yeah, some, it's just marketing. These are some yeah. hobbyists. Literally, these are hobbyists. And most distributors that are distributing products in this industry are hobbyists at best. Hobbyists at best. They don't do this for a living. So they're hobbyists that are just saying it's revolutionary. Where I was cooking dinner last night. I was like, Aaron, look, the spice here, the spice for the chicken, it's revolutionary. It's never been seen before. Oh. I was <laughs> like, it's marketing, but it's still garbage. The, the foamer and the defoamer, it's 40-year-old technology. There's nothing revolutionary about it. All, all these you know, revolutionary products are, are just garbage, garbage in, garbage out. You know, you either... Stay with the 40-year-old technology and you have the problems that they have for our industry. Again, if you're doing cladding for a skyscraper, dude, do it. Do oh, it. Yeah. 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 Nobody cares. I think it's great. Yeah. But if you're making sinks, countertops, furniture, tile, do not do it 
unless you want pain. Some people like pain. That's okay. There's, you know, different subsets. There's furries. There's all kinds of different little subsets. Some people love pain. Uh, so knock yourself out. But there's nothing revolutionary. Yeah, everybody's got to have their angle, though, yeah. right? I mean, they're, you know, and that's fine. You know, there's there's a lot of super this, super that. I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but if you're still, if someone's still c- coming out with that combination under the idea that it's making a better product, I'm willing to say unequivocally they're not making good product. Well, and what they, I mean they don't by know that they don't is know. this. Well, just because again, there's, there's, there's still, there's all of us, anybody who's been on the hamster wheel of sealers, chasing sealers, chasing, you thought this one was bad. You need a better one. The coating was different. Oh, I needed a penetrating. No, the penetrating didn't work. I got to do, you know, they all come back to the same thing. 99.9 of the sealers all do great jobs and actually do what they say they're going to do. And that is protect the concrete. The problem for us in this very small niche industry is we are using these kind of technologies within hours or days where the rest of the industry has already figured out and set standards that you don't seal things for 30 days or longer, you know, and and that's the technology that's out there that's being used. So my point being is, yeah, we, we've been on the short end of the stick because we're so small. I mean, come on, man. It, from, from the use of concrete point of view, we are tiny, 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 well, tiny. And we have way higher expectations. You know, a floor and, yes. in a car dealership is not held the same standard Correct. as yeah. a sink in a fine dining restaurant. Those are two totally different things, and they're held right. to different standards. Yeah. Right. And then because, not that anybody listening doesn't know this, because sealer is the last thing we apply – and and then we buy different buy into different marketing about you know this coating versus that coating a solvent water penetrating you know reactive blah, blah 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 you know which one so I guess it's like politics right while we're backbiting each other's you know who's Democrat or independent or Republican or whatever you know the material itself is just laughing because that's the real problem. I don't the material but as long as we keep fighting over it and buying another quarter of this or a gallon of that and listening to whoever's got that, they, it's almost like they continue, and maybe it's done purposely, to keep creating the problem, but marketing it as solving a problem while it's creating a problem so that it keeps the rest of us, what, you know, not looking in the right direction? I don't know. That's how I feel about it anyway. Maybe. And this time around, it... It's no question at all. Once the testing was done, it wasn't even about strength. As we know, I don't care. It wasn't about any of that stuff. What it was is I watched 15 plus years of my struggles with sealing technology diminish when I got rid of a single product Yeah. or a single ingredient. Once I got rid of that, like what? Oh my God. So a couple of things come to my mind while you're talking. One is there's a market for everything. There's a market segment. Sure. So where some rubbers are really great for the DIY segment that doesn't have equipment, doesn't have technical expertise to use yeah. professional grade products, there's a market for that. And apparently a pretty big market. Great. There's going to be a market for DIY grade 
concrete products. There is a market for DIY. I mean, look at YouTube and Instagram and TikTok. There's tons of people that are DIYers making stuff out of concrete. Great, great. There's a market for that. Our product line, although it can be used by DIYers and we have had DIYers buy it, our market is marketed and directed and developed for professionals. That's who it's for. We're not trying, we don't want to be in Home Depot and Lowe's. That's not our market. And, you know, there's there's a market for that. Great, good. That's, yeah. not, that's not who we No, have. yeah, that's not the target. The target has never been the concrete, and it won't. The target has never been the sealer, and it won't. The target for us has always been, because this is us, I want to be successful in my shop. I want to be successful turning a product, putting it in a client's home, and get paid without struggling to make that happen. Now, if you told me I could do it with, you know, crap concrete and, and oil, you know what I mean? And never have a callback again. I saw again. somebody post something and about linseed oil money. the other day. Oh, did they really? Mineral oil probably? Yeah, linseed oil. Well, but, it, you know, it's one of those things, like I tried all that stuff again 20 years ago. Mineral oil, linseed oil, beeswax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks right. good. It looks good. But, you know, mm-hmm. put a lemon on it but see what happens durable. to it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, so I don't know, man, you're right. There's, there's, um, so anybody's still coming out with this kind of stuff. Hey, you know what? My hat's off to you, but I'll still stick behind the idea that it's coming from people wanting to sell something. And they're probably even super excited about what they're trying to sell. Uh, But, uh, you know, the success of running a business and being successful as almost zero to do with what your PSI of your concrete is and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's being able to turn product and make a profit in your business, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the real goal here for me anyway. If you want to do something, go to the people doing it. That's who you should learn from and that's who you should buy from. If you want to be professional, if you're a hobbyist. Oh, successfully doing it. Sure. Yeah. You get on YouTube and yeah, watch yeah. the videos and buy the, the hobby grade products they recommend. You're going to have hobby grade results, but that's, that's your expectation. You're not doing this for a living. You're not putting it in a client's house. Your reputation isn't on the line. If you do this for a living and you are professional, then you want to buy from people that do this for a living and have done it for a long time there's not a whole lot of people in this industry that actually do it. There's people that say they do it. They don't ask to see their portfolio. Hey, what was the last countertop you made? What's the last sink you made? How, when was this? What year was this? What, what decade was this? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So anyways, my point is there's a lot in it, not just this industry, all industries. There's a lot of distributors that sell to the trades that don't do whatever it is they're selling to that trade, whether it's concrete or paint or drywall, there's a lot of that. There's very few that actually do the the thing that they're selling. You know, there's a um, a brand. I'm looking at buying an RV. I've been looking for a while. I go back and forth, but there's a brand called Brinkley, and Brinkley is widely considered to be the best made travel trailer, fifth wheel travel trailer on the market. Mm. And every review you see from an RV technician, a mechanic who's independent, just they rave about how well they're made because most RVs are just totally crap. Everything about them is crap. The wiring's crap, the insulation's crap. Oh, I'm going to agree with that, man. I think I told you we rented one to go to Vegas and it's shocking. Let me me finish my thought here. Okay. Everything's crap, right? But then these RV techs will go into Brinkley and everything is beautiful. The wiring is run beautifully. The the water lines, everything is the way it should be as 
if you knew what you were doing. And the difference is the people that own Brinkley are avid campers and they are in the, uh, the uh, shop helping build the campers. So when these RV techs did a tour of Brinkley and we went there, one of the owners is out there in overalls working on building the RVs. One of the owners was, and he talked about how passionate they were, the owners. So a lot of these RV companies are owned by people that don't actually use travel trailers or, or, you know, anything like that. So they're making decisions based on dollars and cents, but not for the end user, not for the experience of the person that's buying that product. Um, and that's, that's just a, a anecdotal example, but that's true in this industry. There's a lot of concrete distributors that sell stuff, whether it's mix or pads or whatever it is, but they don't have really any real world experience with the product they're selling. They might say they do. That's easy to do. It's revolutionary. It's easy to say words. It's hard to back it up. Yeah, I agree. Well, I've seen the same thing. I think, I, well, anybody with my son being in trap shooting, I'll tell you what, it really has blown me away to look at trap guns and then which manufacturers of these different shotguns is actually have shooters in their roster helping them build these guns around shooting versus just building a shotgun. You yeah. know what I mean? And what they're looking for and weight and, you know, balances and anyway, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. So you start migrating more because of the experience behind who's manufacturing these materials. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of that going on in, in every industry. That's like, would you buy a car from a car manufacturer that don't drive cars? I don't know. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, yeah, they, they drive horse and buggies, but they're, they're trying to sell you a car. Right. But yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's mind-boggling to me. Yeah. But all right. Um, the last thing I wanted, to, I wanted to hit before we get back on the podcast, and we're going to wrap this up pretty quick, but Erin, we're, again, we were talking last night, and she made a comment that we've mentioned it in the past, but a lot of people maybe are new listeners to the podcast, and they don't know who John Schuler is. John Schuler is the chemist that has developed the vast majority of the products in this niche industry, which is high-end decorative concrete, precast concrete. So John has been around for a long time and has yeah. worked for or has been subcontracted by, brought in as a consultant to help develop the products that almost everybody's using right now. Whether you know it or not, that product from that company over there is a very good chance that John Schuler had a hand in developing that product that provided guidance and consultation on, divide, uh, on developing that product. That's true. When you hear from people, oh, you know, I use this and it's, it's the best ever. And I just like look at you and I'm like, you know, I know the true story of that product. John developed it and it was good at the time. At that time when he did that, whether it was 5, 10, 15 years ago, that was good. It's not the same as where we're at today. No, I, I'm continue to be excited with where these things are going today. Yeah. Uh, to see material advancements, which is something I really enjoy. Um, as you, as I heard, I don't know, some good buddies of mine about how I like to geek out on the uh, concrete chemistry. And that's actually true. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. Really, It's true. The, the difference, um, I John, love the difference seeing the advances with you geeking out on it. And just a, a dummy like me geeking out on it is you have a doctorate in chemistry. So when I geek out on chemistry, you know, I'm, I'm still sniffing glue and, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm not comp near competent enough to have a meaningful conversation or dialogue on that. And very few are because it is so complex. There's a lot of people that are 
uh, armchair chemist, you know, or whatever, and they read some books and they, they understand some basic concepts, but there's a lot to the concrete chemistry that um, very, very few in the world have a in-depth oh, grasp. That's why on. there's so much, so many materials and so many raw material manufacturers dedicated to concrete mm -hmm. um, from, I mean, various Poslin manufacturers, they all do something different. Hey, you know, it's, it's, it can get mine. I mean, it just literally is crazy how much you can manipulate this chemistry for the good and for the bad. Yeah. So there's that. Last thing that was on my list here to discuss is the importance of marketing. The importance of marketing. And marketing is one of those things that I've been accused of. Brand's just good at marketing. He's just good at marketing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I take that as a compliment. I don't know. I haven't seen it, but go ahead. <laughs> so marketing in in what we do is critical, but I would, I'm not going to go into super deep detail because this is a topic that we talk about in our workshops and we do go into deep detail in our workshops. And that's a benefit for somebody coming to our class that we have this in-depth conversation, but I will touch on the highlights of it. The high level part of it is if you're going to trade shows, local trade shows, home shows, you're wasting your money. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're advertising, even I'm not going to say all advertising is bad on Facebook or anything like that, but for the most part, you're probably not reaching the people you need to reach and you're not reaching them in a meaningful way. The people that you want to work with aren't homeowners. And unfortunately I still have homeowners contact me, but luckily the vast majority of my clientele is going to be designers and architects, very few builders. I hate working with builders because they don't know anything. They think they know everything. Uh, but designers and architects are typically the people I work with. That's who you want to, that's who you want to connect with. And there's no shortcut to connecting with those people. It just takes time and effort and energy. And it's very important that you have a good online presence. It's very good that you focus on photography. Photography is critical. I talk about in classes, I could try to explain to somebody the erosion sink. I could say, well, it's a sink and it's kind of like layers and, and it goes down and then it drains over here. It's like, you know, and they're like, uh, okay. Or I can just show them a photo. I can show them a photo. And that makes way more sense. Now, I could show them a photo that I took, or I could show them a photo that a professional took, and the difference is night and day. The one the professional yeah. took is a higher quality photo. And if I'm saying to a client, this sink is $5,000, $10,000, whatever it is, I need them to believe that I can deliver on that and that the value that I'm saying that it is, is what it is. So you don't do that with crappy photography. You do that with professional photography. Photography is important. Media kits are important. When I say media kit, I'm talking about uh, not for like publications, but um, a sample kit maybe is a better word for it. Uh, a package that you give to a prospective client. Client contacts you and says, hey, John, I'm really interested in using you for this winery we're doing. Um, we need to get samples of your product. We're going to you know, possibly do countertops and tables and whatever. Great. You need to have something that you're going to ship them that is professional. I do not recommend you cast a square of concrete and then use a tile saw and cut out a square. And then on the back, right with Sharpie, John Schuler concrete, right. and then just wrap it in bubble wrap and then throw it in a box with peanuts and then ship it to them. They get a lot of that. That's what they get the most of the time, but it doesn't convey professional level value. If on the other hand, they get something in the mail that the box is branded, the tape is branded, they open it up. There's no packing peanuts in there. Uh, there's other materials that are much quieter and they open it up and there's a great printed whatever, whether it's a postcard or brochure or whatever it is, but something. And then there's a beautiful sample and a nice label on the sample. 
that goes so much further with a client for this guy is the real deal. He's not just some hobbyist cutting stuff up with a grinder and writing on it with a Sharpie. Those are things I would say focus on the marketing. But um, the days of trade shows, and you know, I, I made the mistakes early on. Several years I would do those things when I first started, and it's just wasted money. Another thing about marketing, the last topic on marketing, we've talked about this several times, is don't sell based on price. Price should never be part of the conversation. If you're, if you're getting clients because you're the lowest price, you're getting the wrong clients and you're developing the wrong reputation for your company. And you're going to just, it's going to be a, a, a hole that just keeps getting deeper and deeper. If you're using price, if you're getting clients because your designs are innovative, because your product is super high quality, um, then the clients that you're getting are going to be much less price focused and much more focused on you as a craftsman, as a maker versus your competition who might be like, hey, I'm over here and I'll do it for half the price. Or like, yeah, we don't care about that. We don't, price isn't what we're focused on. We're focused on quality. We're focused on innovation. We want this guy. And so those are things you want to focus on from a marketing viewpoint. So anyways, that's my two cents. Yeah, man. Again, I'd love to tell you, I could give you anybody a deep dive into how to be better marketing, but I don't. Uh, Again, that's something out of my wheelhouse. I've been fortunate enough to, over the years, hook up with a couple designers. They keep me busy. So I have not, it's probably unfortunate though, because I haven't had to do that stuff. So I've never learned it. So that's, that's really what I do. But what I would say is, which we won't bring up this again, pricing can't how, how, how much I still hear from people underpricing themselves and what that does in their volume of what they have to keep running and versus, you know, quality of work. It's, it's still crazy. Some of these numbers that I'm hearing from some people and some anyway, which is not marketing. So sorry, I went off. No, it's okay. Cause pricing is very important. It is part of marketing because that is a marketing strategy. If you're Walmart, you get people based on price, low prices every day, low price guarantee, you know, we'll price match anybody. That's the way Walmart grew their business. You can be the Walmart of concrete countertops and sinks. And I'm sure there's some guys out there that are. And they say very, very, very busy. Are the profit margins good? Eh, probably not, unless you're making things in Mexico or China. But then you still have a shipping cost. You know, so it's one of those things that there is a marketing strategy for price. But if you're going for the luxury market, you're going for the demographic that is infected by the swings of the you know, economic environment, then you don't want to focus on price. You want to focus on quality, craftsmanship, innovative design. That's what you want to focus on. And you do that through a lot of different ways, but I hit the high level ones, online presence, as far as your website, professional photography. And then when you do mail them something, because most of the time they're not going to be where you are, when you mail them something, let it be something nice. Put some, put some energy into it. Yeah. You know, don't, don't just do the Sharpie on a, on a piece of concrete that you cut with a tile saw. I've seen that a million times. I've been to architect's offices for a meeting and they have a sample room and I walk by a sample room. Hey, can I look in here real quick? Yeah. yeah. And there's hundreds of concrete samples in there. And 99.99% of them are a piece of a tile or a countertop. They cut with a tile saw and they wrote on the back. That's the vast majority. Some might have a sticker they stick on there, you know, their company, whatever. They're a little bit better than the guy that just wrote with the Sharpie, but just barely. Um, hmm. but there's a lot of that. And then there's just a few that actually went to the next level. And the next level is where you generate that trust. And it's all about trust with the client. Um, I, you know, I, I will give a proposal for an insane number, a crazy number on a project. And, uh, you know, we have a couple conversations and I'll send them a sample kit 
And without fail, I've had every single architect designer that I've sent my sample kit to call me and say, this is by far the best sample kit I've ever seen in my life. Every single one has said it. But I put a lot of energy into it. We hired a professional um, uh, packaging designer, graphic designer, whatever, you know, you know they, they do like brand identity way back in the day. And we worked with her over the course of probably six months, eight months, prototyping different things, having different ideas. I had a lot of ideas. And it took a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, but it's paid dividends. But it, it yeah, takes cool, man. energy up front to do it. But that's how you're going to secure it. You know, if you, I saw one of those. Didn't, you, didn't a couple of those you had like uh, like your face and stuff on some of those? Something like that, yes. yes. Right? Yeah, Concrete yeah. Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> Concrete Pope, Concrete Jesus. Whatever. you got to really your set yourself apart. <laughs> and I have a little Concrete send, Jesus statue that I put in there. <laughs> send photos of you and your family. Bobblehead Jesus. Sorry. Yeah. There you go. Concrete Bobblehead yeah. Jesus. He put it on your that's car dash. I never that's thought about that's that. That's a horrible one. idea. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that that is those, those steps right there for anybody that's listening to this, yeah, those, will, huge. those will set you apart from your competition. I guarantee it because your competition isn't doing those things. You know, I, I have people follow me on Facebook or Instagram and I'll look at their website and it's amazing how many people are in this industry that you go to their website and it's horrible as far as, you know, they did like, a free GoDaddy or Wix website. They didn't even pay to like re- remove the counter at the bottom or whatever it is, you know, the advertisements on the bottom. I've seen a ton of that. But the, the photography, it's, um, that's really what's missing is the quality of photography because you'd have a, a, a kind of a crappy website. A lot of architecture firms have bad websites. I don't know what it is about architects, but they're really bad at website design. But if your photography is good, then you can still sell the value to the customer that you're professional. In today's day and age, with the quality of the templates that exist online, whether it's Squarespace or um, I'm trying to think of the other ones that are out there, but there's several companies out there now where you can just kind of plug and play and they render great on all devices on your iPhone. The quality is there. It doesn't cost much. And then you just get a really good photographer. And those things right there will just put you, you know, way further ahead than your competition. And that's all it takes. But it takes time. You know, there's no, again, there's no shortcuts. It takes time. It takes time. You have to make things people want to buy. If you don't make things people want to buy, they're not going to buy it. And if they buy those things, those things need to stand up to the test of time. So if they, they pull the trigger and they're like, hey, yeah, no, we're going to do this concrete chair for me. We love it. And it shows up and then it sits out in the sun and, and the sealer peels off or turns yellow. That's probably it. They'll never buy another one. So that's the other part of it is design is what's going to get them to buy because they're going to buy what you make with concrete. But then when you deliver the piece, it needs to be durable and long lasting for it to continue to have that value and for you to continue to have the reputation with that designer or architect. Uh, because if it doesn't, they're going to lose trust in you and they won't use you for a future project. And then it was, you know, a lost opportunity. Right. And if they trust you, like, you know, which I've been very fortunate, then, you know, as of today, shoot, I, they don't, nobody even asks me how much anymore. They're just like, Hey, John, can you get this done? Yep. Okay, great. Let us know. Let us know your schedule. And that's the end of the conversation. It really is nice. Dude, I'm doing a fireplace. That's the trust. Yeah. I'm doing a fireplace, um, surround. It's crazy. It's huge, massive with a built-in hearth and, uh, mantle. And it's like hanging on the wall. Anyways, it's complex, but, um, 
the hearth is it's floating off the ground, but not by much, but like maybe six inches, eight inches, something like that, floating above the ground. And the way I drew the shop drawing was it had a drop face, but then they would just do steel supports that it drops over, right? Because nobody's ever going to see underneath this thing because it's so close to the ground. And the designer wrote back and they're like, hey, no, we want it to be solid on the bottom too. I said, well, I can do that. It's going to cost more because I didn't price it for that. I priced it for this. And I said, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Send us the revised uh, invoice and we'll take care of it. That's, that's the kind of customers you want where they're like, this is what I want. We don't care. This is what we want. Okay, fine, great. Let's do it. Um, yep. It's not like, hey, can you, you know, I, I did a rammed earth sample for a client recently and I'm not going to do the project for them. But, um, you know, they, they pay me to make the samples, which was, you know, 3000 bucks or something to make these, these rammed earth uh, color samples using their, their soil from their site. And they're in a hurry. They're meeting with the client as an architecture firm that sent it to me. They're meeting with the client. This is like on a Friday. And they're meeting with the client on a Wednesday. And they're like, hey, hey, we need, to, we need to get these samples for the meeting on Wednesday. Okay. They're like, but before you ship them, can you, can you let us know how much it's going to be to ship them? Uh, no, because I'm going to take them down to the UPS store. And I'm going to tell them it needs to be there by Tuesday. And whatever that is, it is. Yeah. I'm not going to go to the UPS store, get them, you know, once my office set up here, I could do it all on my laptop, but I'm still not going to like go through the hassle, send them the pricing. And they're like, well, if you need it by Wednesday, then yeah. <laughs> if it's a million dollars, it's a million dollars. Like, what are you going to do? You know, it's not going to be a million dollars, but you know what I'm saying? So I just wrote yeah. them back. I'm like, no, I can't do that. I'm going to take them to the UPS store. I'm going to have it shipped, whatever speed it takes to get there by Tuesday. And I'm going to send you an invoice for the, the shipping. And they're like, oh, okay. But that mindset, that like nickel and diming, that was a huge red flag to me that these guys are missing. They're stepping over dollars to pick up dimes right now. They're like, you pay me $3,000 to make the color samples. This is a super important meeting, but you're worried about how much the shipping is to get them there in time for your meeting? That's, that's weird. And then it took them three months to pay me. So I send the invoice and every time I'd follow up on it. No, that's uncomfortable. Dude, it's the worst because it's not even $3,000. It's... I mean, it's, it's money, $3,000, $3,000, but it's not enough for me to be wasting all my time on chasing these dummies. You know, we do projects that are fifty dollars or $100,000. It's a little, a little bigger problem if somebody doesn't pay you. But on $3,000, it's like, it's a nuisance because yeah, you got to keep following. Yes. Hey guys, what's, what's, what's the status of that invoice? Oh, let me check on it. We'll get back to you. And they never do. And then you wait a couple weeks and you're like, damn it, these guys. So, you know, hey, just follow up on that invoice again. Oh yeah, let me, uh, so-and-so's been out of the office. Let me follow up with them. I'll get back to you. And they never do. That's a red flag. My point is, serious customers, price doesn't matter if you're working with the right client. If you're working with the right client, then they don't nickel and dime you like that. Yep. So Exactly. And that's all part of the overall business strategy and success that we've discussed for a long time. That's right, yeah. John. All right, buddy. Well, I got to get back and go stare at a brisket. So. Well, that's what I was just saying, man. This what it's been an hour now, which we thought was going to be thirty minutes. I bet that brisket's done. I bet it's not. So let me. I text my wife while we're talking. I asked her <laughs> what is it up to. It has to get to two hundred three. Okay, so it's at uh, one one seventy nine now. So in an hour, it's gone up six degrees. It was at twelve forty six, one seventy three. Now it's one forty. It's one seventy nine. <sighs> What's that leave? Twenty three degrees, degrees an hour. Four four Good more luck, hours. Man. So it's going to be yeah. six o'clock. Maybe that's a 12 hour brisket. I don't know why it's taking so damn long. I'm going to turn the damn thing up higher. The Just cool eat about, it anyway, man. The cool Just thing bring about it trigger, on the plane. <laughs> the trigger, I'm going to turn it up on my phone to. You can just do it on your phone. I'm going to turn it up. Boom. Screw it. I'm going to get that thing done. All right, buddy. 
All right. We'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you at Joe's place. All right. We'll go get some in yes, and out. Sir. All right, man. Adios. Adios. Adios.